You're listening to episode 77 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. I'm your host, Rachel Mason-Nunn. Today we're bringing you two experts from Port Moresby to give a snapshot of the state of PNG at this unprecedented time. First, I speak with Michael Kabuni, Research Fellow in Politics at the University of Papua New Guinea and contributor to the Dev Policy blog. Michael and I discuss the prevalence of police brutality outside of COVID-19 and the role of policing in containing the pandemic. We also discuss the impacts of COVID-19 on crime rates, including in the settlements which are being hit the hardest. Following Michael, I speak to Maho Levale, Economics Lecturer at the University of Papua New Guinea, and we look more closely at the economic impacts of COVID-19 on informal sector workers, as well as the income guarantees made by the government of PNG. We discuss the popularity of the Marape government and the likelihood that they'll get through 2020 without a vote of no confidence. Maho raises some interesting points about the lack of investment in health infrastructure in PNG and the drivers of this. Both Michael and Maho are young academics at the University of Papua New Guinea, PNG's leading university that was established only 10 years before the country's independence in 1975. Both are contributors to the Dev Policy blog, and we've included links to their recent articles in the show notes. Dev Policy has also published recent articles on how New Zealand's aid program is pivoting to respond to COVID-19, on Taiwan's unique success in managing the pandemic and the support it's providing, the impact of the pandemic on women and girls, and tourism impacts on Vanuatu and the broader Pacific, along with much more analysis, which you can find at devpolicy.org. You can visit our website at goodwillhunters.com.au or connect with us on social media via at goodwillpod. We'd love to hear from you. Enjoy the episode with Michael Kabuni and Maho Lavelle. Michael, thanks for speaking with me. You wrote about COVID-19 on the Dev Policy blog about a month ago. A month later, how are things looking in PNG? When I wrote the first uh, case we had was an important one. So it was an Australian coming from somewhere from Spain. Uh, and the government responded with a lockdown and state of emergency. After that, we had seven local cases spread across the nation. Uh, there was one in East New Britain, three in the border between PNG and Indonesia. And there was one in Port Mosby, one in Goroka, uh, but they all recovered. So at the moment, we don't know, but because of lack of testing, we don't know the extent of the extent to which uh, COVID-19 may have been in Papua New Guinea or affected. But current tests that we are having are those who have come into contact with positive uh, COVID cases. So it's not a test where you go out and test, collect a sample and test to see how many people are infected in the community. So there has been a lockdown in response to those cases. Borders have been closed between some provinces and a state of emergency was initially declared, followed by a national emergency. What's life like in Port Moresby at the moment? People had to adjust. It took, it took some time for people to adjust because even after the lockdown, uh, especially the ones in settlements, they, they make their living by you know, selling food along the roads and informal market. So when that sat down, there were people, even with a lockdown, going out and selling stuff and the police were chasing them away. And there were a lot of complaints on social media. Up until very recently, the government decided to buy food from villages around Port Mosby and uh, gave it out to 
churches within Port Mosby to give it out to uh, those settlement people. So the most affected in the city would be the settlement. Have you seen an increase in police brutality during this time? I'm not sure whether it's an increase because police brutality has been in Papua New Guinea and it's been really bad for some time. Uh, there were complaints of mainly on social media because the mainstream media uh, doesn't seem to report you know, what's happening in local communities or especially within settlements. But the social media has been flooded with police uh, breaking markets and beating up people who are walking along the road during lockdown. And uh, we are called owners complaining of police collecting fees, putting roadblocks and collecting fees. So this kind of things has been, it's not new. Uh, it's been going on even before the lockdown. I don't think it's an increase. It's just, you know, what the police has been doing. You said there that local media in Papua New Guinea don't report on what happens in the settlements. Why is that? Maybe because it doesn't sell the papers. <laughs> they report on, you know, 23 million going missing and new COVID cases. And I think one of the reasons is because police, you know, brutality is not a new thing. They've been reporting for some time. And if you report about police brutality, no one is surprised uh, that you know, police burst up a few guys. I think they're trying to report on things they think are interesting and that could sell the papers. But social media is doing a good job at it, filling that vacuum. And some of the things they put stuff they put up on the internet are quite graphic. So would it be fair to say there are signs of more economic distress than usual in the settlements at the moment? Yes. So there was an article written by guys from National Research Institute, and they made an interesting point. They said uh, settlements, even before the lockdown, they have been struggling to survive in Port Mosby. So with the lockdown, it's, it's getting bad. And what fears do you have about the future of the settlements? Well, the lockdown has been lifted since last week and they are getting back to, at least this week, they are getting back to selling their stuff and, you know, making a living. One of the main things that they, that the settlement people uh, sell is buwites, one of these nuts that, as it's a bad site with a lot of rubbish and in the spittle that leads to cancer, the estimate is about one million kina changes sense in a day. It's widespread. The police, um, I think, did a good job in stopping that. Uh, supplies coming from surrounding villages and other provinces into Papua, but mostly, and even in other provinces. Right? That uh, ban is still on, so it's, it will affect a good number of people who survive on that. And as a result of that ban, have you seen an increase in crime in the settlements or in Port Moresby generally? So that's interesting because lockdown, the police who were, who were out to enforce lockdown, they were walking into settlements, they're going to places they you know, traditionally don't go. Uh, they drive around in vehicles, but this time they were going into these places to enforce lockdown. It led to a slowing crime rate, so at least it reduced the incidence of crime that we see around Port Mosby. When lockdown was uplifted last week, uh, there was a newspaper article, I think yesterday, where the NCD police commander said there was a rise in crime again, uh, but he blamed that on alcohol. I don't think it's alcohol, it's the police retreating from this area that they were monitoring, and that's probably why uh, there is an increase again. In some areas, they are still monitoring, but it's not as uh, strict as during the lockdown, because 
during the lockdown, they had, they had to block every access point. Now they've lifted the lockdown, even the state of emergency is still on for another month. You did say earlier that the police were blocking access points across the city and were charging fees in order to be able to bypass access points. Can you elaborate on that? Yes, and it wasn't our official direction from the police hierarchy. Uh, they just used the opportunity to collect collect fees. And again, this is not reports from mainstream media. This is reports from social media. Uh, people complaining, you know, I paid uh, 20 kina to get on a PMV and then I had to pay another 20 kina to get past the police checkpoint. And uh, PMV drivers complaining that they had to pay the uh, police to get their vehicle past the checkpoints. It makes it very hard to control the spread of COVID-19 if people are being let into spaces unregulated in the way that you're describing. It is hard to believe that the caseload is as low as what it is. Are there doubts about the number of cases that actually exist in Port Moresby? The first thing is that we we don't know because we haven't conducted tests like, let's say, in Australia or in Korea where they militarily test people, collect samples to see you know, how widespread or cases, uh, COVID cases are. In Papua the only people that get to be tested are those who, who came, in from, uh, came in from OASIS, uh, those who have came into contact with uh, the seven, eight positive cases. So we don't know. It could be more. Health expects us. Influenza pattern in, in Papua New Guinea is that it, we have higher cases around May and November. So we'll get to know if, if there are COVID, more COVID cases in Papua New Guinea. We'll get to know by this month. How would you assess the government of PNG's handling of COVID-19 in general? Well, they should be recommended for responding early enough to declare state of emergency and and shutdown moments uh, because the air infrastructure in Papua New Guinea is very poor. Our best chance to end all this thing is to lock down. And even though it's having an economic impacts on people, uh, we had to decide whether that's important or stopping COVID from spreading. The decision to declare emergency lockdown was should be commended, but they didn't plan for it. When it started in Wuhan last year, was it December, opposition government in Papua New Guinea was telling arguing that the Papua New Guinea government should start planning for it. They didn't, maybe they did, I'm not sure, but up until the first case, there was not much done. And when we had a first case, the emergency was, the state of emergency was in response to social media because everyone took it on social media and criticized the government and the response they had to take was to lock down everything. I think the lockdown was good. Over the years, the government hasn't been by investing in, in health infrastructure. And now we all rely on relying on emergency and lockdown to solve the cases. The government is also using some pretty confusing language to describe the COVID-19 cases, in particular describing positive cases as becoming negative rather than having the person recover. Is that confusing people? It's confusing and it's, it's driving a lot of misunderstanding uh, within a community because before that, I think it's part of fake news or ignorance, but people were saying, you know, COVID-19 does not spread in all uh, climates. COVID-19, I don't know where they got the statistics or, or research from, but they were saying uh, the virus dies in all climates. So that's a misunderstanding. And then the government's use of language saying from positive to negative instead of saying recover 
is reinforce, reinforcing this uh, misconception that the virus somehow dies not climate. In Australia, we've seen the popularity of our Prime Minister Scott Morrison increase since COVID-19 broke out. What is the popularity of Prime Minister James Marape like at the moment? I think the PNG politics is a little different from Australian politics. So you in Australia, you look at policies and our government response and you base your judgment on that. In Papua New Guinea, it's charismatic, how charismatic the leader is. So even if the government mishandles it, but the prime minister is charismatic enough and joins supporters, his supporters will be loyal uh, to the prime minister. So it's difficult to tell whether the prime minister is becoming popular uh, because of how he's handling the COVID-19 issue. It's really difficult to tell because uh, even if he messed up things and went to election, he would still win because people usually don't vote or support based on policies and how they handle issues. It's how charismatic the leader is and other factors. It makes it difficult to judge the popularity or lack of. So based on that, how likely do you think it is that there will be a vote of no confidence in the Marape government later in the year? I think one of the certainties of PNG politics is is that the Prime Minister is never safe. Uh, so it's not safe. There will be a vote of no confidence. I, I think there will be a vote of no confidence. Uh, whether he survives that or not is a question we'll, we'll see in November. Uh, but it's not safe. I think for the last decade, we had a prime minister who stayed in their position and finished their terms, which was different from previous uh, decades, because after 1975, every prime minister was removed in a vote of no confidence. But the first prime minister to finish the term was Michael Somare from 2002 to 2007. And he also finished the second term from 2007 to 11, and I was removed in a vote of no confidence. And Peter O'Neill came on and he finished his term and then started the second term and was removed. The interesting thing about these prime ministers completing their term was the use of UNC funds. In Papua New Guinea, we call it discretionary funds because it's at the discretion of the prime minister to spend it, the members to spend it. But the prime minister controls that. The way it's been going is he disciplines those who, the MPs who don't support him by withholding uh, their funds and then rewarding MPs who support him by giving uh, their share of the funds. So with this economic downturn in Papua New Guinea, these funds have been slashed. So that's the kind of tool that the prime minister uses to, you know, stay in power, getting the support, MPs to support him. So it's going to be interesting in November, James Marape, because uh, this tool has been removed. We have just seen the PNG government refuse to extend the lease on one of the biggest gold mines in the world, the Pogram mine. I think that surprised a lot of people. How would you explain it? So the government saw this as a window of opportunity to act because the lease was expiring. And if the government didn't renew the lease, so if the government went ahead and renewed the lease and wanted to get out, the government would have to pay for damages. This was, from the government's point of view, a good opportunity to act. Now, they are saying the reasons that the government gave was environmental damages with the operation of Pogera and related environmental damages. That's the reason they are giving. But many commentators don't think it has to do with environmental damage. Uh, if it was environmental damage, they would have locked down uh, or shut down Octedi, which is government-run. And it's got clear evidence of environmental damage. Uh, waste being released into Fly River and communities along the Fly River suffer. So it's really not because of environmental damage. The government, I think, wants to control of Pogera and increase its uh, share of revenues 
because it's not like manufacturing where they uh, employ a lot of people. Uh, mining employs very uh, less people and it's capital intensive. So with all of that in mind, what do you expect will happen next? The court directed them to go back and renegotiate, but I don't think the government will give in. You know, this is what James Marape said when he became the prime minister. His first uh, speech in the parliament get maximum benefit for Papua New Guinea from natural resources. And he tried to renegotiate this new uh, LNG project, which is called Papua LNG. And they didn't succeed in that because the contract was already signed uh, and they were trying to renegotiate after the contract was signed. So that didn't work. And this is the second negotiation, and I don't think uh, the government will give up on this. So lastly, you work at the University of Papua New Guinea. How has COVID-19 affected teaching, and when do you expect students to return and lectures to resume? So we sat down for almost a month now, and for almost a month. You see, we didn't have the capacity like Australian universities have. They've been teaching online and face-to-face lectures, so they could easily move on to another medium, online medium. The first two weeks of the lockdown, we didn't do anything because the university was open that after that we would get back to classes. And then it was, the lockdown was extended for another week, two weeks, when there was a case in Port Mosby. And the state of emergency was extended to two months. So now the university is getting everybody to learn how to use online uh, materials or so, so online technology. So they are going into Moodle and Google Classroom. But I've been doing some courses with James Cook University for since 2017, I guess. The medium uh, in which they delivered was online. So it was easy for me to go online using Google Classroom and Zoom communicating with my students. But I couldn't give assessment because the university hasn't sanctioned that yet. So we are starting classes on the 11th of this month and we are all expected to go online. So the university has given directions for all the staff to learn how to use internet technology, online classrooms and things like Skype and Zoom. Uh, there are already talks of extending the semester to make up for almost one month that we missed. Graduation for this year was postponed. We don't know when the students are graduating. Maybe when we get back to school on, on the 11th, university administration will come up with a date for graduation. For those who are continuing studies, I think the semester will be extended by maybe a month. Okay, any final predictions on what the next few months look like for Papua New Guinea? The expect expects are saying we will know by this month, which is, well, the guys from Medical Research Institute, they've been tracking things like polio, this like polio and others in Papua New Guinea and it peaks around May and November. If there are more cases, more COVID cases in Papua New Guinea that we don't know because of lack of testing, we'll know by this month. And we might go uh, into another lockdown again. That seems to be the only effective way because of poor health infrastructure. Lockdown is the way that government is trying to manage uh, COVID-19 in Papua New Guinea. So if it peaks by May, we might go into another lockdown. We'll just see. We hope that there is a cure found somewhere and then the entire world can get back to normal life. We definitely hope so. Thanks for your time, Michael. Thanks for having me. That was Michael Kabuni. Next, I speak to Maho Levale, economics lecturer from the University of Papua New Guinea.
Thanks for chatting to me, Maho. You recently wrote an article for the Dev Policy blog on the economic impact of COVID-19 on Papua New Guinea. How are things looking now? Things are looking much different. Um, so from the time we wrote it, uh, there was the uh, state of emergency that had just happened. And then it, it went into the national emergency that, that took two months. So there was a lot of restrictions. But the restrictions are being lifted as of this week. Schools have opened. Um, churches have opened. Um, pe- people are now moving around more. Um, buses are um, being used more frequently. So there are higher rates of bus fare. But uh, yeah, pe- pe- people are moving around better. They're working and so th- things are slowly moving back to normal. So it's, it's the national emergency now. The state of emergency um, occurred from March 24th to 6th of April. So that, that had more uh, type of restrictions. The national emergency had uh, more relaxed restrictions. But um, it's, it's, I think it's a phased sort of relaxing of different restrictions. And um, yes, yeah, so, you know, you see people uh, moving around more. Uh, they're going to schools more. So that's... The, risk, the last restrictions that will be lifted will be more um, domestic, sorry, international flights to most of the international centers that you traveled to before, and uh, domestic flights to all of the provinces. Uh, so, for example, the provinces near the borders that have, uh, that have no flights to them. And just elaborating on the article you wrote, what are your main concerns about the economic impacts of COVID-19 on PNG? Uh, what we're basing uh, the impacts on is uh, the government's um, projections. So uh, there's a domestic impact and there's an external impact. Um, The external impact is from lower export volumes and lower uh, trade volumes um, in general. So, yep, there's less uh, revenue coming in to our larger exporters, uh, the mineral extractive industry, and also uh, small agricultural producers that export. Um, and also the domestic impact from the restrictions. Um, so, uh, for example, the, the tourism industry has been impacted. Um, the restaurants and airlines have been um, closed down. They've contracted. Logging industries have contracted as well. They've laid off workers. Um, so it's, it, it's been a really bad time. Uh, incomes of people have been hit hard. Um, the informal sector has also been hit hard. So uh, travel uh, restrictions um have uh, limited uh, agricultural uh, produce that have been traveling in from NCD, for example, uh, to lay, right? And so, yeah, and travel restrictions as well. So that's another, uh, the travel sector has been hit hard. So, yeah, across the board, um, we've been feeling the impact. So it sounds as though a lot of those economic impacts are being felt in the provinces. What kind of economic impacts are you seeing in Port Moresby? I'll start with the informal sector. So the these the settlements. So the urban poor um, has basically ha- had it hard um, because they depend on cash for their livelihoods. Um, so schools have closed. Um, mothers cannot sell to schools where they usually did. People that depend on agriculture and betelnut, right? So these um, agricultural producers that come from other provinces have been shut down. So they now can't sell. Um, and also people. Uh, that worked um, in in uh, hotels and restaurants have been laid off. So it's these people that have been um, impacted the hardest, I think. And um, and you see that in um, the NCD governor um, having all these initiatives to bring food uh, from the central province in. Uh, so they buy them and then they distribute them to um, households that have had their incomes dried up. And, um, and then you see people that have been laid off um, that, that are uh, at least higher in the uh, income hierarchy that, that are also being um, being impacted 
hard as well. And so they have um, access to superannuation that has been um, basically accelerated to meet that need. But apart from that, um, workers, uh, so the government has um, basically guaranteed um, public service and also uh, private um, employees that they're, um, they will be paid even if they're in um, sectors that aren't making money. So yeah, that's, that's pretty good. And I can go into the taxes side of things if you how exactly is the government making those income guarantees? So um, the, the, the government's um, outlined uh, basically um, other, so part of its stimulus package. Um, so the superannuation is one. It's also lifted um, taxes on, um, so corporate income tax, um, wages and salary taxes, personal income tax, has had a three-month holiday. And they also have, uh, for businesses, um, a loan repayment holiday of about three months, which will end, all of these will end in June. So that's uh, basically helped to um, help the cash flow and companies to at least meet the, um, yeah, the wages needs of its employees. What's been the opinion of the general population on the tax cuts and the efforts of the government more broadly? I think people are have been encouraged by um, everything the government has been doing. Um, I personally feel encouraged as well, um, just because I think the government, um, maybe not as perfectly as it would have, had it acted early. Um, and so we don't, it's mitigated a lot of the impacts that would have been more worse if it hadn't um, done all these um, uh, the stimulus package as well as the uh, restrictions that we've seen. So, so it's, yeah, it's basically limited the spread now. It's clear that the government did act early to control the spread of COVID-19, but are there concerns around the lack of investment in health infrastructure and that that lack of investment is coming back to bite Papua New Guinea now? Yeah, and that's a very good point. Um, so, for example, the um, the difference between the 2019 and the 2020 budget had a 50 million cut in health expenditure. And then um, just before the... Um, the pandemic hit, uh, there was a public accounts committee chaired by the governor, Gary Jufa, um, and um, all those recommendations weren't followed through. So we basically have um, both the health system and a, and a basically underfunded health. So the health system and underfunded health um, basically yeah, system that um, hasn't been able to yeah, adequately um, uh, address this crisis. Yep, we're, we're looking at a poor health sector and we're also uh, depending on external funding to help. Why do you think it is that there is such little investment in local health infrastructure? I think it goes back to its, um, their individual um, members of government um, and how they use their, so, uh, you know, the discretionary funds and PSIP, DSIP funding. There's a component that you can use in health expenditure and because um, the overall health expenditure the government puts um, doesn't directly address um, specific hospitals and aid posts and so on. So if those DSIP and PSIP funds can then address those specific problems, but yeah, you don't see that more often. And then um, it's, it's dilapidated infrastructure that hasn't been basically addressed. So it's, it's very sad. Um, Nanga Hospital, I think on The Guardian, had a um, had an article I think two months ago that this um, nurse saying that uh, they use um, nappies uh, to as hand sanitizers, basically the chemicals in there, and um, the PI Industries that produces beverages is now supplying those hospitals with um, ethanol-based hand sanitizers just because the government can't produce them or or purchase them, and um, I think funding from external. Uh, funders have, have been delayed as well. So, yes, it's a very sad state. Uh, Pomosby General Hospital, if you've seen it, um, is not a reflection of what's out in the centres. 
I've, I've traveled to my hometown in Manus, uh, and my um, the aid post there has been closed down. There's no drugs in there. The nurse is non-existent as well. So it's, yeah, it's very sad for uh, our rural centres. So that's a pretty bleak picture for the provinces, but in contrast, it sounds as though there's quite a bit of optimism in Port Moresby. What's life like in Port Moresby right now? People are feeling optimistic. Um, there's a lot of doubt now that there's, there's only been eight cases confirmed and one case in Port Moresby that um, the restrictions weren't uh, shouldn't have been um, put in place in the first place. But I'm, I'm optimistic that things will return to normal and I and everyone around me. So um, we're starting um, lectures next week. Schools have started this week. So you, you can see a general excitement of things going back to normal. So I did speak with your colleague Michael earlier on the popularity of Prime Minister James Marape in recent times, but I'd be keen to get your opinion as well um, on how his popularity has been faring over the last month. I'd say uh, Marape's popularity has um, has gone up um, just because we see um, in neighbouring countries like Indonesia and in Australia where cases have gone up and there have been deaths as well reported and there there are no deaths with just eight confirmed cases here. So um, all in all, I think uh, from what I've heard from other people, uh, Marape has, has done a pretty good job of uh, uh, combating this crisis. So, yeah, he's got more points now. So to close, what are your predictions for the next few months for Papua New Guinea? Oh, I think um, we'll be uh, we'll be going forward. With, with, um, it'll be a more accelerated, I think, uh, recovery. Uh, we'll just have to wait until China opens its borders more, so that our logging exports can go, as well as our agricultural exports. But I think when businesses start to flow on, as people start moving around, um, restaurants and hotels, when um, uh, the international flight restrictions are um, lifted, then I think things will start returning to normal, businesses will start um, flourishing more. Thanks for chatting to me, Maho. Thank you so much for having me. That's it for episode 77 of Goodwill Hunters from the Development Policy Centre. Tune in for another episode next week, and in the meantime, we'd love to hear from you. Connect with us on any of our social media channels via at Goodwill Pod. See you next week.